To the Bulwark goes to Hollywood. Uh, I'm Sunny Bunch, culture editor at the Bulwark. I am joined today by Allison Makor, the author of Rewrite Man: The Life and Career of Screenwriter Warren Skarin, um, and uh, an author in Austin, Texas. I'm very excited to talk to her today uh, because I, I recently read her book. This came out in 2017, 2018. When did, I, I just re- I read it this week, and it's really pretty fascinating. Uh, could you? Could you? I, I could introduce Warren Skarin, but I think you, as the as the actual biographer, would be better qualified to do that. Who who was Warren Skarin, and uh, why are why are we talking? About, well, I'll, well, I'll get to the why we're talking about him. But who is who is Warren Skarin? Tell the people who Warren Skarin was. Warren Skarin was a screenwriter, um, and he it was the writer for the last writer for Top Gun, uh, Beetlejuice, Beverly Hills Cop Two, and Batman. Um, he started his career as a script doctor um, in Hollywood, but before that, he was um, the first head of the Texas Film Commission. Um, so he kind of segued out of politics into film and then into Hollywood. And it looked as if he was an overnight sensation because he his really one of his first credits was Top Gun. But honestly, he had been building toward that for about 10 years, which, you know, I think is typical of a lot of writers, right, who are overnight successes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I the, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you is because there's a there there there's an interesting side of this that I, I think a lot of people don't either know about or really appreciate with screenwriting. Right. Which is that uh, especially in kind of modern Hollywood, but even back in the in the the golden age, in the golden age of the studios, um, you know, it, it, these these movies aren't always written by one person. It's not one person sitting down at a, a typewriter and banging it out. There are often teams of writers, and there are people who go through uh, and and rewrite work and and try and punch up stuff and all that. And and the case of Scarin is very interesting because he uh, became kind of. Um, well, I don't know if he was a poster child for the problems with the various uh, arbitration issues, but uh, the WGA arbitration and the the uh, um, the the system of arbitration used by the Academy was was not to his benefit, at least at first. Um, so, could we could you could you talk a little bit about his his problems there with Top Gun and uh, I don't know how, how that got resolved and and w- what he would do in the future to kind of make it better for him. Sure. I mean, Top Gun, as I said, it wasn't his first. He had done something called Fire with Fire, and that brought him to the attention of Don Steele at Paramount. And so when um, Don Simpson and Jerry Bruckheimer were having problems with Top Gun, she said to them, hey, guys, I've just worked with this writer in Austin named Warren Skarin. You might want to meet with him. And they did. And the cool thing is, you know, all of Skarin's files are in an archive here, uh, a well-known one in Austin called the Harry Ransom Center. And um, he recorded a lot of his phone conversations because I think in part he was working from Austin. Um, There might have been a little bit of paranoia there too. Um, And in Texas, you know, there, you don't have to let the other person know you're recording them, which is is kind of interesting. So there's, there's even a recording in his file um, with the uh, credits administrator at the WGA um, that I listened to that was really helpful and sort of just reinforced how kind of arbitrary, for lack of a better word, the process is. Um, on Top Gun, you know, he and Simpson, really, they clicked pretty quickly. 
Um, and Skarin was really eager. He knew this was a big deal. Tom Cruise was about to leave the project. Um, so he turned something in in about um, maybe a third to a half the time that maybe a regular writer would do. I think he turned his first outline around in 10 days. Um, and really, Cruz was about to leave the project because he didn't like the character. He thought Maverick was, to use his words, an asshole. And so one of Scarin's biggest uh, jobs on this was to make him more relatable, more accessible. Mm-hmm. Um, and Cruz, you know, had just done Risky Business. So his star was definitely on the rise. So there were things that he was considering. You know, how am I, how do I want my, you know, what's my... Um, my star going to look like, you know, who am I as an actor? And uh, this would change for him. And that would kind of come back around for Warren too, working on days of thunder. Um, but so for Top Gun, Warren really just kind of sat down, had to figure out how to make Cruz more relatable. I mean, one of the key things he did too was um, the previous, one of the previous writers had done the character of Carol, who was Goose's wife. Um, and she was just really just the wife. Uh, but Scarin wrote this scene after Goose's death that put Carol, um, that sort of showed a more empathetic, a more sympathetic side of Maverick. It had the two of them interact. It was an emotional scene. And it was things like that, that he was able to do. Um, you know, and I can maybe some people who aren't fans of the movie may be rolling their eyes like, you know, I'm sorry, motion in Top Gun. But I mean, it was the kind of thing that he brought to it. How yeah. can we make this maybe a movie that not just guys would go see, but maybe guys and their girlfriends at that time in what was it? 85, 86 Hollywood. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the things that you you emphasize in this is that he kind of really punched up the 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 female characters. Uh, also, Kelly Preston's uh, Charlie um, is, gets a, gets a much bigger, uh, meteor, meteor role here. Yeah. Um, and, and, and so he, he, he goes through all this. There's, there's a great passage in your book. Uh, uh, and I just, I, I actually took a photo of it. I want to, I want to read from it right here. Um, uh, the, the experience of writing it. So he, he wrote this, he basically did a page one rewrite in what, two weeks, three weeks, something like that. And you know, that's, it's, it, that's a lot of, that is a very fast turnaround on a, on a script like this. I will just put it that way. Um, uh, but there's this, there's this amazing passage in your book about what this did to him physically. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the, this is, uh, I'm quoting from your book now, uh, still the experience had taken a toll toward the end. Scarin was wearing a patch over his left eye to compensate for the sudden inability to focus his hands, which had become calloused from round the clock typing were bandaged in bubble wrap. Um, I, I mean, that was that, that like, it's, it's, it's an actual physical thing. And then, so he go he go he bangs out this, this first draft, he goes to the set, he's actually there doing, you know, onset rewrites and, 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 uh, helping with dialogue and running the actors through dialogue and all that. He's on calls with, with Tony Scott and Tom Cruise. And then he doesn't get a credit. Mm-hmm. in the movie. I mean, mm-hmm. I, uh, this is, this is the thing that is so fascinating to me. It's clear that he is an integral part of the film, but he wasn't the first writer and right. people who aren't the first writer often get kind of screwed in these arbitrations. Could we, could you talk a little bit about that and what that process was like and what it did then? Yeah. The, the, the writer's guild, the manual is sort of predisposed to give the first writer 
credit if possible. And in, in some ways that was a protective measure, right? To protect them from producers coming in, producers, girlfriends, producers, boyfriends, you know, whatever. And um, if you look at the, when, when, a, when a studio sends in the list of materials to start the credit process, it's basically a one or two sheet that lists every single um, source material. So for Top Gun, for instance, it started with this article in, I believe it was California Magazine, um, about Top Guns, you know, about these elite fighters. And then the last 10, and I think the list, it's, it's been a little while, but I think the list was maybe 20 things. And the last 10 things were all Scarin's work and he didn't get the credit. Um, and the when it goes to the credit process and somebody disputes it, a writer disputes what's proposed. And, and in this case, it was Cash and Epps, the team who had written the original screenplay, the first one, and they were a writing team. They worked together out of one in LA, one in Michigan. Um, Scarin disputed that. And so everybody has to basically write um, a statement of arbitration, um, a, a, sorry, a statement of contribution that um, says, here's what I did, essentially. And Scarin's was very, you know, direct. Um, it was passionate, um, but it, you know, didn't change anybody's mind. Now, to me, the interesting thing about that situation is that, you know, I think he was held in such high esteem by people like Don Steele at Paramount that he was given an associate producer's credit. And it was sort of back engineered. So he got this one memo that said, okay, so here's what you will also be doing. You know, you'll be going to these test screenings, you'll be doing sitting in on these, um, you know, editing sessions. It was just all this other stuff he had to do in addition to kind of getting the movie onto the screen. Um, and, you know, he was upset. And I love what his agent, Mike Simpson, who is, you know, still, he's like a VP at William Morris today. He's Quentin Tarantino's agent. He's a lot of Tim Burton, you know, there's a lot of connections here to Austin too. Mike Simpson was in Austin for a time. Um, but he said something to him along the lines of, you know, <clears throat> we're like, um, samurais or warriors you know we we kind of, it was a very zen thing to say sort of like take this in learn from it and go forward and by the way everybody in this town knows that you wrote this movie and that's essentially how it works you know people are aware of who did who does what um and so, you know, he, it didn't mean he didn't get work again. It just meant that he got an associate producer's credit. And it's funny, I was just looking at the credits on IMDb and I don't know when this happened, but he is listed on there as uncredited screenwriter. I don't know mm -hmm. when that was added, who put that in, I don't know. Yeah. Um, I want to say it wasn't there when I was working on the book, but I could be wrong. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, I, uh, I it, and and there's there are always all of these great stories about uncredited writers, you know, doing punch up work, right? Like Quentin Tarantino, you mentioned, right. is is often credited with punching up Crimson Tide and all sorts of um, of, of of movies with little little great speeches and bits of dialogue. And John Milius's, you know, Jaws speech, right? I mean, there's there's all sorts of uh, great stories like that. So then, so Scarin, he, he doesn't get the credit here. He does end up getting more money because he gets profit participation, right. um, which is which is kind of another an interesting little tidbit uh, from your book. Um, uh, but then he- but, Checks are still rolling in, uh, in, a, in a very strange twist. 
it's a long story, but I am now on the board of the trust that was set up. And so I know very well what's coming in hmm. and, um, yeah. Is, oh, so he's still, he's still, the, those are still coming into the, to the family trust or, or whatever. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, It's a charitable trust, I should add. Okay. So, yeah. Okay. Oh, very, that is very interesting. Um, but you know, it's, it, it the, the, uh, the, there's another passage from your book that I want to read here because it gets kind of to the heart of this whole question and this whole conversation that I, that I want to have, um, which is when he, when he signs with William Morris, um, you know, he kind of writes a he writes a memo or a letter. Uh, I can't to himself or to, to someone. But it basically, he the big question he he asks in this in this memo is, who owns a screenplay which I write for someone else? And that that to me is the is is the kind of again the heart of the the matter here, the real crux of the issue, which is you know a writer writes and a writer feels like he owns the thing that he writes but when when you're working for these kind of massive conglomerations of of studios and corporate interests and whatever there that's a real question and it's a real it's real tricky to untangle do you think um that the process that they have in place for this or at least the process that they had in place for this then is is a useful or fair one for getting the the, the writers the credit they deserve um, you know, I quote from an, uh, I think is an attorney who, you know, wrote this legal kind of brief or article about this process. And he came down on the side of it's not a great process, but it's probably the best one for this business, which has to get movies out by a certain time with a lot of money being on the line. And so I guess that's kind of where I come down. Um, one of the things that surprised me is that by the time I was finishing this book, um, I went and, you know, was looking at the screenwriter's manual or the Writer's Guild manual, and I just couldn't, I couldn't believe how little had changed, that there haven't been major revisions, especially given now how many platforms are in use, you know, and how that might affect a writer's contribution and, and at what stage. So it is like turning a cruise liner, you know, I think to get any of these changes made. And um, it's, it's, you know, it's a system that's, that's been in place for a while. And I think there's probably so many workarounds like things like give them an associate producer's credit or so-and-so knows what he's done. You know, I, mm -hmm. to be honest, you know, one of the reasons I wrote the book is, you know, I taught for a long time and taught film history classes. And I was kind of surprised that, never in the curriculum or very little, very rarely in the curriculum for the production students, were there any like sort of real classes about script doctoring? I mean, I know it was talked about, but since it's going to be the reality for so many people, especially new writers um, coming out of, you know, writing programs, I just thought this is going to be the reality. Somebody, you know, somebody needs to write about this. And then I discovered his archive and was like, whoa, this is like an interesting, tragic story built around this whole idea of, of authorship. Yeah. We'll get to the tragedy in a moment. It is, he, 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 he died young. We'll, we'll talk about that in a bit, but then, okay. So Top Gun happens. He, he doesn't quite get the credit he probably deserves. Um, and then, uh, the next, the next couple of films are Beverly Hills Cop 2, which there's a whole nother That's like lawsuits and, yeah. you know, and all that. But before that, or I, around the same time, there's Beetlejuice, right? And Beetlejuice is interesting because in your book, you emphasize that he, uh, was in touch with the original writer and was like, Hey, let's, 
Michael, let's not, yeah. let's not fight about this. Mm -hmm. Let's, let's all, you know, kind of work together so we don't go through this process again. Um, and I, I, I was curious, uh, you know, what, what your sense uh, was of, uh, how, how the original, uh, author of Beetlejuice, uh, kind of, uh, acclimated to that. And if that, if that was a better way of doing it. Well, you know, within the writer's guild rules, there is a, a rule that says writers can resolve credit issues or disputes among themselves. Um, so that is an option. Um, and I think Scarin was very much like, this is not happening to me again, what happened on Top Gun. And he was a people person for sure. And so he's like, I'm going to reach out from the beginning and try to smooth this over. I don't, I don't have McDowell's sort of side of it. Um, and he died, you know, before I wrote the book mm. or yeah, a little before I wrote the book. Um, but I can tell you that from the way the credit worked out on that film, that it was a much better situation than it had happened on, um, Top Gun. And I think that's because, you know, Warren understood, I want to, you know, reach out. I want to tell this person, okay, I'm working with your script. You know, there was a, there, he was trying to make it as transparent as possible in what is essentially a very, you know, opaque, a very non-transparent process. Yeah. And then, of course, Beverly Hills Cop 2 is, as I said, kind of a whole different thing with involving lawsuits that had been sparked by uh, a, a something that Gore Vidal had started years before. I, could you could you walk us through the, the whole rigmarole there? I'm uh, that that is a that's a, you know, a real a real can of worms. It is a can of worms. I'm not sure. Three years down, I can really <laughs> every nuance, but I will do my best. So. Broad strokes are fine. We're dealing with broad strokes here. Um, you know, they were having problems with Beverly Hills Cop 2, and they called Warren. And, yeah, I think he was working on Beetlejuice, and this may have even carried over to when he was working on Batman. I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. that, you know, there was this was a very short period of time, like four or five years, that Warren did all these films. And so the, the, the Beverly Hills Cop 2 is a sequel. And so... You're working with, um, you know, story credit, original characters created by, um, I think it's Daniel Petrie, and there was another writer. Um, the thing that's so hilarious about Cop 2 is that two Austin writers were actually among the first writers, or one Austin, one Dallas, um, Bud Shrake and Dan Jenkins. And Bud and Warren were friends, and yet they had no idea until the very final credit thing that they had all worked on this same thing. Mm. You know, and literally, Bud and Warren lived maybe two miles away from each other. <laughs> and um, so, Bud and Bud Shrake and Dan Jenkins did a first pass. Um, I think they had some kind of, you know, a caper set in a warehouse. It might have involved illegal arms. I'm not sure terrorists. Um, I don't quite remember. Then um, the idea came about to sort of make this about like a series of murders based on the alphabet. Now here's where it gets really kind of con confusing but tricky because <clears throat> it only came up at the end during the arbitration that Eddie Murphy and his manager, um, Robert, um, I think you say Wax, W-A-C-H, that mm -hmm. they had sort of, they put in for story credit because they claimed that it was their idea, but this was sort of at the back end. And so, you know, Warren fought that by the way, because um, to him, it seems like maybe that 
the paper that was signed that yes, we hereby say we came up with this idea sort of looked like it might have been signed year a year or two later. Um, so they came up supposedly with this, this story idea. Then a guy named Larry Ferguson was brought in to write, to do a, a screenplay. And, um, you know, I've read, by the way, I read all these screenplays. I would sit down and read them in order so I could get a sense of what was changing, who did what. It was a painful process, I must say. Yeah, yeah. I was, I, I was, I wanted to ask. Um, uh, since you, since you bring it up here, I'll, I'll just ask here. Uh, I, I haven't had a chance to like scour through the sources yet of your book, but the, but the, the, it is interesting to me that you know you're talking about like minute changes yeah. that kind of accumulate into larger changes as it goes. I mean, you're in theory, this is what the arbitrator should be doing, right? Is looking at each of these. Right script drafts and saying like, okay, this, this, this is this, this is this. And we finally get from point A to point Z. Um, uh, but you know, I, what is your, what's your interpretation of kind of like reading them one after the other? Is it just mind numbing? Do you just kind of like start to blink out after a little while? And, and, and because that, that is, if I had to do this, I know I would, I would, you know, I'd be, I'd be getting kind of bleary eyed by the well, end. Well, I will tell you that, you know, I had two fellowships to write this book, which means like I sat, I went to the archive, like for a month at a time, each time was able, which was a gift, you know, to work on this project and go through the files. I remember very distinctly, like it took me maybe two or three days, eight hour days of going through the Top Gun materials. And my husband said later that he felt like I was more aggressive that week. Like I just seemed like more angry and aggressive after I got through all the Top Gun stuff, you know, it's kind of hilarious. <laughs> um, but yeah, it can be mind numbing. Um, it can be hard to figure out, well, what's changing here? In the case of the Ferguson screenplay for Beverly Hills Cop 2, while you might have had a decent structure, I can tell you, especially as a woman, reading his female characters, I was like, what the what? Because, <laughs> like, I, seriously, he, I think he used the word gazangas or something to describe one of the characters' breasts. And I thought, oh, my God. And, you know, Scarin read it, too, and he had written in the, the margin something like, you know, no female characters in this movie, no softness. And so, I mean, those are the kinds of things he was charged with, not not just beefing up the structure, making it, have it make more sense, um, and not just, you know, improving the male characters, but also like, for instance, on Beverly Hills Cop 2, he brought in this character of Jan, who was the detective's daughter. He kind of created this character and she could kind of be a surrogate for the detective when he was recovering from um, an injury, you know, during the film. So it was an interesting way to do it. And there was one point I remember in the back and forth of the memos where, she, you know, she was becoming a really interesting character. I mean, I was reading her on the page and thinking, oh, this is, this is really interesting. And I forget who, but somebody said, you know what, she's becoming almost too interesting. You know, she's, she's got too much agency. We need to change this. I mean, that was essentially what they were saying. Um, so it was fascinating to read stuff like that. You know, you really see sort of the power dynamics and you understand, oh, this star is going to play this person and not only a star, but a male star. And so this character cannot, you know, be mm -hmm. too interesting. Um, but anyway, so Scarin, you know, did all this work on the script and then, um, 
There might have been somebody who came in. I think, oh, Dennis Klein. Somebody named Dennis Klein had come in. Not somebody. He was a TV writer. He had punched up the comedy before Scarin got to the script. Um, and he was able to get Axel Foley to Beverly Hills sooner. Um, but again, Warren came in and sort of, he shaped it in a, in a very specific way. Um, he established he was really good at establishing relationships among the characters or strengthening them. And he did that with Bogomil and Axel, um, you know, and, and in part through having them, I think, talking in the very beginning of the film about going on a fishing trip. You know, it was just stuff like that, that he could throw in. I mean, he was really good at observing people, understanding what made relationships personal and kind of sprinkling that stuff through a screenplay. Yeah. I mean, it's it's interesting to think about how that kind of works into the arbitration yeah. system, because I know I know that one of the things that they look at, uh, it, it's hard to measure, you know, characterization, right? It's hard to say you've pr you've provided 50 percent of this character's development or whatever. Um, but the things that they can look at are things like structure and things like new characters and new locations. Um, could you could you could you break that down a little bit for us? Because, again, I don't think people understand exactly how that that uh you know how that works how that how that actually you know makes sense to 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 the arbitrators well and the arbitrators are very wary of things like new characters right because if you're a writer coming on a script and you understand that okay i've got to make you know maybe if you're a writer who's been through this process you may think oh well i could you know invent some characters and that may may, may look at look make it look as if i did more than you mm. know added to this thing. So I think they're very wary of stuff like that. Um, it, and, you know, I, I, not to demonize the arbitrators, you know, who are anonymous. I mean, I think it, it would be difficult in some ways. I mean, you could easily say, well, yeah, but Eddie Murphy is known for improvisation and he came into this. So who's to say, you know, how much he imprinted you know, brought back Axel. Do you know what I'm saying? So they have yeah, with yeah. the character thing. How much credit do you give to somebody like Warren? I mean, I think factoring all that in, it's not just dialogue and all of that. It is, um, you also have to consider, you know, star power and, and presence. Um, uh, but as far as walking you through it, I mean, it's a it's a secretive anonymous process. The arbitrators going through the materials, and it's it you know they just sort of go through it, and then they make their suggestions, and then the writers get a letter saying the credits will remain as is, or the credits will change. Mm -hmm. And Ferguson was disputing the fact that he and Scarin were sharing credit on this mm -hmm. film. He thought that he had done you know enough work to get a solo credit. Um, and as you know, from reading the book, he disputed this for years. And so, you know, which meant that Warren was uh, caught up in these lawsuits that carried out, honestly, um, you know, they ended, uh, only after his death, really. Right. Right. Um, uh, and, uh, again, we'll, we'll, we'll get there shortly, very, unfortunately, shortly, um, uh, after, after. <laughs> yeah, after and so so after Beverly Hills Cop 2 there is his his biggest his biggest 
hit his biggest payday, uh, et cetera, uh, Batman, which was uh, which was a which was a whole, you know, which is again, it reminded me a little bit of the Top Gun mm-hmm. Um, situation where he comes in and he, he, I don't think there's the same, there's not the same sort of credit dispute. Um, but the, but in terms of like kind of almost doing a page one rewrite, uh, and then being on set and working with the stars, working with Jack Nicholson and Michael Keaton and first Sean Young and then Kim Basinger after, after Sean Young left the production. Um, uh, what, what was that whole experience like? Because I, I, there's, there's an argument to be made that Batman changed Hollywood and uh, as much as any movie since maybe Star Wars uh, in terms of its size and the materials it was working with and that sort of thing. I mean, what was that? What was that like for him as a uh, uh, as as a rewrite man, but also just as a as an artist and as a as a you know filmmaker? Well, he was very valuable, you know, by this point in Hollywood, um, and so he had a piece of Batman, um, which, you know, which was tremendous, really, when you think of what that movie did. Um, and he flew to London, he was working on, you know, during this time, he's working on things that never saw the light of day, which is very typical, but he's working with big people like Michael Douglas, you know, he's going to Hong Kong, and he's trying to write the third, right, this the third in the yeah. Romancing the Stone series. Um, so he wasn't, yeah, with Batman, it was, it was sort of more of the same, you know, there were problems with the script, but there were problems with the um, Bruce Wayne character. And, you know, this is Bruce Wayne, and this is a comic book character. So he also had to deal with um, oh, Bob Kane. That's Bob, Bob Kane, true. Yes. Yeah. And that, you know, he got this sort of withering letter from him in the beginning, just saying, like, these are my characters and, you know, just want you to know that I'm, you know, I'm a consultant and I'm important. Um, So there was sort of even more stuff to deal with on Batman. And then, you know, Sean Young getting injured and having to be replaced. Um, Kim Basinger comes on and then there's like weirdness behind the scenes where she's having a relationship with one of the producers and Warren gets pulled in to kind of counsel. I mean, (laughs) what the what? And and again, that's a tribute to Warren's interpersonal skills. Um, But yeah, he on, on Batman, he was right there on set and there's a picture in the book that Sean Young took of everybody working at this long table. Um, And, and it was that intense. He was working, with Michael Keaton. Um, he was working a lot, you know, Jack Nicholson, he was a tough nut to crack, but it, they finally kind of, uh, I don't know if I'd say bonded, but they, you know, they they had a meeting of the minds over Nietzsche. So you put a little bit of that into, um, you know, the Joker character. Um, and again, that's one of those things where this didn't go to arbitration. But if you're going to, you know, go into that, you're you're going to think, hmm, okay, there's this on the page, but there's also Jack Nicholson, you know, and Jack Nicholson, the Joker. I think a lot of people associate him with the Joker, you know. Um, so another complicated production, um, uh, and and one that was very. Um, that did that was that was hugely successful for him yeah yeah i and then uh, um, and uh as as we we've suggested a couple of times here he he died shortly after that movie was released i mean we're not 
less than a year, I think. Right? I, I forget what the exact timeline was, but uh, ar- around a year yes. or something like that it was in 1990, end of 1990. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, but like, I, I mean, it, you know, obviously that is uh, that's a little bit uh, tragic and unfortunate. Could you could you just talk a little bit about the end of his uh, the illness and and just to give people a sense yeah, of well, what we've been he had been diagnosed. At. He had had a cancer diagnosis around 1987 that he kept secret um, from his pretty much, you know, those closest to him, except for maybe his wife and a couple other people. Um, he was advised to do some treatments beyond, you know, remover, removal, beyond surgery, and he chose not to. And so two years, actually three years later, um, you know, it really like literally took him down. He was in so much pain. He had so much back pain. Um, he went in, he had, you know, he was looked at here locally in Austin and then was sort of told you need to get to MD Anderson, um, in Houston, like ASAP. And he was there within a day or two. Um, and then was basically given, um, you know, he was given six months to live and, um, you know, he was still trying to work on the sequel to Beetlejuice at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, and it just, his life took on this kind of otherworldly quality in part because he wanted to try to treat the cancer with alternative um, methods that, you know, now may have had very different outcomes, but at the time, um, you know, and so he sort of brought in this team around him of people who were, you know, cooking macrobiotic meals. And he was a very, he was a healthy person. And so it wasn't completely, you know, different for him, but sort of he put all his energy, what little energy he had mm-hmm. left into this, going this route. Yeah. There were yeah. Some, no, it's yeah, a... a yeah, it's it's it just it's just kind of a bummer to read because you read this, you read this book, you kind of get to know him, and he seems like you know kind of a a fun, almost domineering type uh, at at times in terms of taking charge mm-hmm. and and all that. Uh, but you know what's what's interesting, uh, and I had no idea. I mean, I I've lived in I live in Dallas now. I've lived here for I don't know, 10, 10 months a year or so. Um, I, I I I had no idea that a uh, you know, he, he had lived here in Austin, but also B was, was involved with the formation of the Texas film commission and was kind of a silent partner on, uh, the Texas chainsaw massacre, which I, he was you, know, producer's obviously. Rep, you know, what we would call a producer's rep today. And he actually helped get the deal for chainsaw to be distributed by this small independent company named Brian, <laughs> who, uh, also had mob ties. Now I grew up in New Jersey, so you know, like when people are like, that sounds made up. I'm like, it is not. And <laughs> they had um, set up Bryanston as kind of a, f- a front, you know, I mean, just as Hollywood was diversifying around this time, so was the mob. And so um, they had, Bryanston had done, um, uh, forgetting the name of the Linda Lovelace film. Uh, uh, deep Throat. And that film, yeah. you know, was brought up on obscenity charges. And so the company ended up going under because of that and other reasons. And um, and in some ways sort of bringing down Chainsaw's uh, earnings with it. Um, although that that film continues to send in checks to... <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, that's crazy. That's crazy. Uh, so I, I mean that, that was pretty much everything I wanted to talk about. I like, I, I think it, I think it's a really interesting uh, story and a really interesting book. People should check it out. It's called rewrite man, uh, the life and career of screenwriter Warren Skarin. Uh, uh, is there anything else that you think people should know, uh, about Warren or about, uh, any of the stuff we've discussed today? I always like to ask my guests if there's something I should have asked, if there's something that you think that, that people should know. Um, uh, about about the topic. I think so. it just, you know, Warren's story um, interested me because it really represented a specific time and place in Hollywood um, and, uh, uh, you know, gave a great example of a subject that, as you said, people, the average moviegoer knows very little about. It's a very complicated subject and it's still very relevant to movie making in our time. And, um, so that's why I wanted to write about it. You know, I think I think Warren's story is 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 dramatic and tragic, and it also shows you know how one script doctor kind of made his way, at least for a time in Hollywood. Um, and and I appreciate your interest in it. You know, it's oddly enough, maybe not oddly enough, but um, there has been screen screenwriting interest or screenplay interest in this book and so i just think warren would think that was hilarious given you know all that's gone yeah yeah uh well great thank you very much for joining me uh allison i i really appreciate it i think this is a fun chat and like i said uh the book's on amazon i i picked it up here in town uh, uh at, a, at a bookstore but it's on amazon so everybody can uh, check it out if they want. Um, uh, and I will be back next week with another episode of The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. Mm-hmm.